I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me and part two of Crawl Space by Karen Hines. In part one of Crawl Space, we meet actor and writer Karen Hines, who tells us how in 2006 she took the leap into Toronto's real estate market and invested her life savings into a coach house. To her horror, she discovers that her condo alternative is actually a converted car garage that is illegally encroaching on her neighbor's property and is infested with rodents. And that's just the start of her nightmare. This is part two of three of Crawl Space by Karen Hines. I found my realtor, Danny, in 2005 through his website. His family was from Bristol, but he went to Upper Canada College. He looked like a snowboarder, only different. At our first meeting, I observed the tilt of his head, his perfect spa-firm skin, the fact that he seems to need no food or caffeine. At a cafe where he takes me because he's showing me a condo above it, he orders matcha but lets it chill and drinks water. In a wine bar, he orders a glass of Pinot Noir but drinks less than an ounce. While herds of realtors have died snorting their profits up their noses, mine is fueled by water. I hate every condo he shows me. In 2005, there is nothing for 189,999 except for white bowling alleys, so tiny your sofa has to face a flat screen, not your friends. By condo number 18, Danny is losing patience with me. And so I go online one night and just take a peek above 200,000. And yeah, a garage is technically a condo alternative, no lie there. But weirdly, they don't have stats on how garage prices are climbing in Canada. And really, the main part of the house had been a box, and windows had to be cut out of it and framed with plastic fucking window frames bought from the sitcom store. And the neighbor doesn't notice that what was once a shed is now a room until the plywood camouflaging the back of my house as shed gets waterlogged in the spring rain and falls into her yard. Which I don't understand at first. But I am beginning to learn that none of the laws or guidelines in our country mean anything. It's caveat emptor all the way. On a terrible night, two years after I bought the little lemon yellow house to which everything had been done, I threatened my realtor, Danny, with a butcher knife. No. No, I didn't. 
On a terrible night in March 2008, I offered my realtor the opportunity to buy the house from me for the same price I had paid two years earlier in a piping hot Toronto market. I was in his kitchen. It was dark. I was shaking. I leaned against his polished concrete countertop and said, It's a good deal, Danny. I hear house prices in Toronto are rising by 18% per year. We were close enough to kiss. He accused me of threatening him. I used to think I wanted a polished concrete countertop. Now, I just want shelter. But then, everyone has their real estate story, right? Their triggers. Knob and tube. Flight path. Landlord-tenant agreement. Termites. Bed bugs. Flood. Roommate. Black mold. Seeping wall. Unexplained odor. Crawl space. But remember, the ending is super happy. Like the first day of class and I'm really nervous, so I'm getting these new hair products because I want to make a positive impression, you know? So I put on the gel and I put on the mousse and the hairspray and I'm thinking, I'm going to look really hot. And then I walk into class and all of a sudden something weird starts to happen. It starts to dry, but it starts to dry weird and it gets all hard. It gets all hard like a helmet, like I'm wearing a helmet on my head. And they're all looking at me like, who is that girl and what's that on her head? Oh my God, it's your hair. <laughs> That was a self-tape, a radio commercial audition I did from home, probably because I was waiting for some contractor, probably stoned on gravel, which I'll get to in a bit. Radio commercials were largely how I supported myself at that time, and a self-tape is often a failure guarantee because clients want to meet the performer, look in her eyes, make sure she isn't crazy. My agent told me I could have had that one, but the client was concerned that my take was a little too intense. I'm not seeing my friends at this time. I'm not seeing my parents. They are elderly. I am freaky. At a time when I need money the most, I find my agent calling me less often. Okay, so now it's May. Full on thaw. My neighbor to the back comes to my front door. She tells me that when the flippers were renovating, she thought they were just rebuilding the shed. But now that the back of my house has fallen into her yard, she can see that what has been built is actually an addition. And it's on her land. I ask my neighbor what color siding she would like, just to sort of change the subject. And could I please buy that land from her? I didn't know anything bad when I bought the house. The survey was out of date. It was, in fact, on a mimeograph, which... For those of you who were born after 1963, is a kind of Xerox. And for those of you born after 1987, is a copy. I had noticed that the survey didn't quite match the floor plan, but when I pointed that out to Danny, he wasn't concerned. 
He told me a new survey would cost like $2,000 and just get title insurance, which I'm like, what's that? But so I get the title insurance. I take my lawyer brother to that meeting and I show the other lawyer the mimeograph and he's nodding and my brother's nodding and I'm thinking, great, two lawyers in Canada nodding and title insurance is only a hundred bucks. And so that you know, this is before love it or list it. This is before property virgins. This is before the mortgage crisis and the Wall Street insanity that smartened everybody up. The second my neighbor informs me that my house is on her property, I upgrade from wanting to rent to planning to sell. Full disclosure, I don't care. I will pay for it for the rest of my life. I just don't want to think about it anymore. It's like bedbugs in my brain, these heinous defects. I tell myself, it's springtime. The market's hotter than it's ever been. Just buy the 48 square feet of your neighbor's property and get the fuck out. I learned from City Hall that it can take months or years of red tape to subdivide in Toronto, not to mention the thousands of dollars in fees, which I don't care about. Money means less than nothing to me now. But meanwhile, my neighbor doesn't want to sell. It's land, she says. We don't really own it, she says. It owns us, she says. Just stay. I don't want to stay. I want out. But I learned that if she won't sell, I may not be legal to sell because I now have the knowledge that my house is on her property. So I say, well, just tear the fucking walk-in down. But I'm told by everyone saying around me that if I tear down the only storage in the joint with washer, dryer, hot water heater, the house will be unsellable because those items will have to get moved to where the sofa is. At some point, reality strikes. I am worth less than nothing. I had put my 30000 down. If I try to sell it now, I'm being told... My house could be worth as much as 50000 less than what I paid for it. I think title insurance. But as I learned from that lawyer, my title insurance offers no protection around boundary issues when insufficient boundary information has been provided. Meaning, why hadn't I just gotten a new survey? And I would think in desperate moments about hooking... But like the kind of hooking I imagined in my childhood where I would put on a pair of sparkly shorts and walk the block down to the busy street, come back an hour later with a jug of milk, a loaf of bread and a crisp roll of twenties. I was losing jobs now, making useless self-tapes or blowing auditions live because they looked into my eyes. I was paying twice monthly what my rent had been, getting deeper and deeper into debt. So I was like, well... Hooking. And like I would never actually do it, but my mind keeps turning to it in the way I imagine men in tough spots turn their minds to carpentry or odd jobs. I imagine it, and I know I'd be too scared, but I am by this point $43,000 in debt on my credit cards, roof, pottery barn, twig orbs, and also my new habit of basically putting my mortgage, utilities, and groceries on my visa cash advances, which I have been convincing myself are okay because I am in transition and fuck acting. The newer, better TV writing jobs I was maybe going to get would take care of all my debt. But now we're talking siding and subdividing, and so I do the deadliest thing. I get financial help from my brother. Just for the siding at first, but bit by bit he comes on board my sinking ship. He co-signs a line of credit against my house, so I won't lose everything to the bank. I should have let the bank have it. Because what happens now is my brother starts talking three moves ahead. Raising the house up, moving it onto land I legally own. He sends an engineer who suggests knocking down the walls and building a basement. 
for a closet. We could do it in the fall. And even I know you can't rent out a construction site. And even I know I will be borrowing more money from my brother before this is over. And that I am trapped in Cabbage Town. When people are babies in this world, our world, the first world, they mostly have a crib to themselves. Mostly, but not always, children find themselves in their own bed and or room and or some subdivision of a room. My siblings and I weren't rich, but we had each some space. My bedroom walls were covered in seahorses. I didn't pick them. They were done to me, but I grew to love them. And when I threw a teenage fit and painted over them, their images seeped through. And they were comforting. When I was 19 years old, I lived in New York, and I had a shrine. A trunk I carried my stuff in from shitty apartment to shitty apartment, and on which I set a candle and a bracelet from my mom, a Barbie purse with a lucky nickel in it, a cigar box full of letters, a photo of me and my sister on a swing set wearing matching outfits. The shrine was home, no matter what crazy Hell's Kitchen roomie I was living with. It made me feel calm and protected. Caveat emptor. Buyer beware for those of you who don't speak Russian mafia. It's timeless. It's like existentialism, really, so much the same. I am. I choose. I chose. This is a Pottery Barn found olive bucket. Once used to gather olives in countries along the Aegean Sea, this bucket takes on new life now as a home for potted plants, seashells, or anything else that sparks your imagination. It's made of metal and was found on the island of Sifnos, where it was used to collect olives in the fields. Each one is one of a kind, and therefore unique. I chose this. We all have our things. Heights, needles, small spaces, spiders, blood, drowning. Crawl space. We used to live in caves. Before that, we slithered up out of the sea, looking for shelter. We'll be right back. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. On the night of May 29th, 2006, 
I come home after a week in South Africa, shooting a television commercial. And when I say South Africa, I may mean Thunder Bay. And when I say shooting a television commercial, I may mean leading a clown workshop. I exit the taxi, roll my suitcase up the cobblestone parking pad, open my front door, and I smell a smell. The body weight of adult raccoons in Toronto varies considerably. Males often weigh in at 20 pounds or more. That's like a big cat. The average city mouse weighs about an ounce. That's about 25 grams. At the beginning of winter, a raccoon can weigh twice as much as its spring weight due to fat storage. So, like, two cats. So let's say the average male raccoon at the start of winter weighs 35 pounds. That's more than 500 average-sized mice to make up a good-sized male raccoon or a fat female, a mid-sized dog. The heaviest recorded raccoon weighed 62 pounds, but that was in Louisiana. That's more than half of me, more than half of a human body. A large male Toronto raccoon at, say, 40 pounds would weigh slightly more than a third of my body. Probably the middle third. With all the organs. For some reason, Men who work in real estate are often very attractive. Like psycho killers. Think Paul Bernardo. Then think of those twins on that Renault show you probably don't watch because you're too young to believe in progress. Anyway, part of what happened, probably, is that my realtor is very attractive. He sort of looks like a young Harrison Ford. And when I say Harrison Ford, I may mean George Clooney. And when I say George Clooney, I may mean a beach body Gandhi. And though I don't think I ever would have slept with Danny, and he certainly would not have slept with me, I saw his wife, she looked like a young Gwyneth Paltrow. And though I don't even really like him, I know he is attractive in that cruel sort of way. And yes, you did just hear me use the word cruel in the context of attractiveness, which might betray my mean daddy predilection. And so, yes, I did respond to his quiet authority. I don't fall for that shit anymore, just so you know. Part of how this whole fucking thing has made me a better person, but back then. It says on his website that he's an expert and I am overcome. I never thought I would own a house. I'm high on endorphins, like shopping times a thousand. I'm becoming part of something. I'm becoming part of adult society. I am going to have a better future than what I would have without a house. May 29th, home from South Africa. I walk in the door, I smell a smell, and I think, idiot. In my rush to leave, I left wet laundry. I check the washer, nothing. The dryer, nothing. But the smell seems to be coming from the back of the house, where the plumbing is. In the morning, the smell is worse. I call Danny. He pops by in his rounds, tells me I have a dead mouse, probably in the crawl space. The odor will dissipate in a week or so. 
One week later, the smell is worse. I call Danny again, and he is getting testy. Must be a squirrel, he says. Might get worse before it gets better. He dashes off. It's springtime in the hood, and the market is heating up. Back in February, when I had asked Danny where the access to the crawl space was, he gestured vaguely at the icy deck. Now I examine the deck, board by board. There is no little trap door. Just one area where the screws are stripped. When I call the cellar, which I think you're not supposed to do, and I ask her where the access to the crawl space is, she tells me in a dead voice that it's under the deck somewhere. The deck floor is eight inches off the ground and even I can't squeeze underneath it. I call back. She blows me off. And see, this is all before Extreme Home Makeover and Scott McGilvery and HGTV porn. This was a different world. Homes on Homes was the only game in town, and I wrote to him. Three weeks later, I received this email back. Dear homeowner, your story would make a unique and interesting episode. Unfortunately, it is only possible for Mike Holmes to help people who have been ripped off by a contractor or builder that they hired themselves. Best of luck, Sherry Holmes. Wonder if they're related. Anyway, raccoons are not rodents. They're small bears more. And contrary to popular opinion, they don't wash their food, but they do like it moist. They travel in families, and just like ours, their babies like to curl up with their moms when they sleep in their rock dens or tree nooks. It makes them feel secure. Danny had explained to me when we first looked at the place that my flipper was a widow. My cellar. She had designed the interior herself. It was, he told me, her passion project. The night we signed the papers, Marilyn and I, and did that back-and-forth thing, she invited me in from Danny's Range Rover because she wanted to meet me. She wanted to tell me that she had carved the little rectangular pieces of slate for the backsplash herself. She wanted to tell me how sad she was to let the little house go. She looked deep into my eyes. She hugged me, and I remember the softness of her black sweater with black rabbit fur trim, how warm and comforting her plump arms were. I remember my spiritual real estate agent, expressionless, arms crossed, standing by. So, like, I write dense little plays for boutique audiences, and she flips garages into designer condo alternatives. All my cellar was doing was feeding her family in a creative way. She was a widow. And I had no disdain for her. At that time. We all want the same thing. We want to survive. We want to find meaning in our lives. And we want something better than what our moms had. Danny had also explained that, except for the backsplash, the heavy lifting for the renovations had been carried out by Marilyn's son, Jason, who was himself a real estate agent. He had overseen the construction. At the time, I took that to mean transparency. 
decency. The renovations were being done by a son for his mom. The guy's an actual realtor who must know how things should be, how things must be to warrant the everything has been done moniker on the MLS site. I understand now what family meant in this case. Someone once said that character is about what you do when no one's looking. My seller used her eldest son to do her renovation, and when no one was looking, they created a grotesque list of latent defects in the smallest house in the city and sold it as done. I'm the kind of girl who tidies my hotel room before I leave, and I leave a tip. But I have stolen newspapers from Starbucks, and I can be a condescending little cunt from time to time, so perhaps this is my karma. What it all means in June 2006 is that I'm living in a movie set for a horror film. All that's left is for the body to be that of a human. Three weeks later, it's the hottest June in 20 years. The smell of death hovers around the house like an oily cloud. It hits you like a wall five feet from the front door. I try to describe it to my brother. He thinks I'm making it up. My friend Jeff offers to help. He tears up the sweet little deck with a crowbar. There is no little door. There's no access to the crawl space, just dirt and rubble. I call the AAA wildlife company who kindly drop by. They can tell this is no squirrel. This is larger, probably a raccoon or a cat. If I don't get it out of there, the odor could take six months to dissipate. They back away, apologetic. They only retrieve living animals. I call my insurance company, and this is the opposite of product placement, but very legal, because what is true is that State Farm says they can't help because the problem is not inside the house. It's underneath. I call the city. They say they can't help because the problem is not underneath the house. It's inside. This despite the photos Jeff has taken of the crawl space. This was before iPhones and selfie sticks, and he shoved his actual camera into a hole he made while searching for where the animal was. The photos show no plastic-lined concrete-walled crawl space, but rather an irregular landscape of hillocks that rise between 16 and 8 inches below my uninsulated bamboo floor. Filthy piles strewn with yogurt containers and chicken wire. Big Mac wrappers. Construction guys just throwing their lunch litter down into the dirt. This, the city says, is inside my house. Mountain Dew cans ten inches under my bed. And we still don't know where the animal is. The smell you see is equally intense now from any approach. Though I can ill afford them, I receive a parade of contractors who inevitably refuse the job. The crawl space is not deep enough for humans to crawl in, but any digging down could cause the wood and cinder block foundation to cave in. I offer them danger pay. I joke and flirt, but they all back away. Nothing can entice these men inside that revolting tomb. This is High Park. They have lap pools to build. A weird logic swirls around everyone's capacity to do nothing. So it's kind of fucked. And I think about how great it would be to have a skinny baby. Strap a camera to its head. Send it crawling in on reconnaissance, because there's more I need to know. 
These are the thoughts that I have at this time. This time when most women my age are making their final huge decisions around whether or not to have a baby or another baby. Right when everybody's asking me with some urgency, are you going to have kids? I'm having hysterical laughing fits by myself, drinking vermouth shots because that's all I've got. And I'm imagining getting a skinny baby for reconnaissance. A skinny baby with a camera strapped to its head. There is something that living with the smell of death can do to you. It's like the opposite of aromatherapy. That was part two of three of Crawl Space, written and performed by Karen Hines. Episode three is available now. The floor director for this recording was Jordina Beattie. Dramaturgy is by Sandra Belkowski and Blake Brooker. Crawl Space was first performed publicly at Video Fag in Toronto in September 2015. It was commissioned by William Ellis and Jordan Tannehill. This episode's sound design and edit is by Chris Tolley. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is produced by Expec Theatre in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information on our plays and artists, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.